Tonight, the Black Friday frenzy is already in overdrive. As of 10 o'clock this Thanksgiving morning, consumers spent $406 million online, up a striking 23% from last year. Slide down to verse 7. It said, Then Herod summoned the wise men 
He did so in secret, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you found him, would you bring me back word so that I too could come and worship him? And after listening to the king, they went on their way. Verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and he killed all of the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, because that was according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And this was fulfilled as just as what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Let's pray. God, I think you have an incredibly important message for us today. And while few of us want to admit it, I think that the character that we're going to look at, a lot of us can relate with him. And have been there and had moments like that. Maybe we're even struggling with that as we come into this Christmas. Father, I pray right now that you would clear out all of the distractions. Father, that you would use your word like a, an arrow that pierces straight to the heart. God, shape us, mold us, and make us more like what you want us to be. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. Okay, first of all, there's a lot in this text, all right? A lot in this text. And so here's what I'm going to promise to you right now. I promise I'm going to come back to this text again next year, all right? <laughs> uh, some of you caught the joke. Look, it, look, there's only a couple of Christmas texts. I promise we're going to preach it almost every year. So, but this text is very important. It has some amazing characters in the birth narrative of who Jesus is. But you know what's amazing None of these, none of these people were actually there at the birth of Jesus, right? You have the wise men who come, and while we don't really know, we ascertain because of what the text tells us that they were as much as maybe two years after Jesus was born. When it says to us that Herod goes and kills all those that were two and under, it's because that's when the star first appeared and they started following it. So Jesus could have been as old as two years old when the wise men got there. Well, Herod, he wasn't there. He didn't even know a baby had been born. He was still in his palace. And then you have the scribes and the chief priests, right? They didn't know that this baby had been born. They should have probably known that the baby had been born. I mean, how in the world did they miss the signs and the wonders that came along with it? How did they miss what all the scriptures had taught them about this time coming? They had. And each of these people had an incredible dilemma, right? First, you have the, the wise men. And these wise men and their dilemma was about searching for this newborn baby and they have come into the city of Jerusalem and they have walked into Herod's palace seeking this newborn king of the Jews. Herod was king of the Jews. And so they assumed that it was his new son that had been born. And they begin to ask about it. And all of a sudden they realize, oh, this is not where it's at. This is not where the star was leading us to. And we don't really know where we're supposed to go, but it's not here. It's not now. 
So they have a dilemma on their hands about what it is that they're going to do. Then you have the, the chief scribes, right? And, and the, all of the priests that were there. Because their dilemma is, how did they miss this? Are their lives at stake now? Because the king is about to be furious that they didn't inform him about what was about to take place. Maybe they're not the prophets that they should have been. But then you have Herod. Herod's who we're going to talk about today. Now Herod may be, he may be one of the most hated men in all of biblical history. Perhaps second to maybe only his son, Herod, who crucified Jesus. And Herod made a decision. Let's talk about his decision before we even get to his dilemma. His decision was to kill all of the babies that were two years and under in all of Bethlehem and the area around. Now historians struggle with this. There's not a lot of record about this having taken place. And the reason is, is that Bethlehem was not a very large town. So you're talking about maybe 20 or 30 babies that would have been killed. Don't get me wrong, that's still an atrocity. But what would drive somebody to kill 30 innocent baby boys? What kind of a dilemma would possibly bring that about? That's where we're going to focus today. Now, to be honest, this is not the first time in biblical history that we've seen babies be killed. Nearly a thousand years before this point, Pharaoh in Egypt killed all of the, the babies of the Jewish families. He did so as a population control and as a strength control measure to keep them from, from outgrowing and outpacing and taking over his country. So it's not the first time we've seen this in biblical history. Now, Herod, though, had a whole different reason for why he was doing this. Now, much of Herod's story is not told to us in the Bible, right? Because Herod falls into this period of time that's called the intertestamental or deuterocanonical period. Right? Those are really, really big words. So I put them up on the screen to help us out, okay? So the intertestamental period is the about 400 years between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. Actually, to be honest, it's the events of the book of Matthew. So Malachi finishes up somewhere around 420 BC, and then Jesus comes onto the scene, most people think somewhere between 4 and 6 BC. Not zero. Eh, sorry to burst all your bubbles. The guy who put the calendar together back in the 1500s missed a couple of days along the way. Uh, he got a little bit off of his calculations, and so um, we don't have Jesus, Jesus born in zero, like we all think of him as being, but he's probably closer to 4 to 6 BC, somewhere in there. So not only, um, so Jesus's, excuse me, Herod's story is not recorded in the Bible. It's actually given to us from a whole bunch of extra sources. 
And they could turn Herod's story into one of the most fantastic series that you've ever seen. If you've watched Game of Thrones, or if you've watched like The Tudors, or if you've watched any of like Elizabeth, or any of those like documentaries that like HBO, BBC, and all of those do about these families who are battling over the thrones, I'm telling you, Herod's family's story could make an incredible series. Well, let's just let's just back up and let's look at it a little bit. So this area, it's, the area is called Idumea, right? And Idumea, you don't really know where that's at, so I've got a little map to help us out. And Idumea is down there in the box. And it was a critical piece. The, everybody who was any sort of conquering empire would go right through this stretch of land because it was the only north-south land way to get down into Africa. It was the only east-west route to be able to connect what was Europe and what was Asia. So it's this critical piece of land. And so over and over again, this area of Idumea was conquered by empires, starting with the Babylonians. And then you have the Assyrians and the Syrians. Those are two different peoples, by the way, the Assyrians and the Syrians. And then you have, um, you even have the Persians who come through and conquer this area. And of course, one of everybody's favorites, Alexander the Great, right? The Grecian conqueror who conquered most of the known world. He went right through Idumea. And so it probably shouldn't come as much surprise to you that the Romans, and a couple of famous guys from the Romans, as a matter of fact, you've probably heard the names Julius Caesar and Pompey. In 63 BC, they conquered this region. Now what's interesting is, is that Herod's dad, Herod's dad is the one who helped Herod to become king. Herod wasn't born a king. In fact, you, you know, you've probably seen the Maybelline commercials, right? Maybe they're born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline, right? Yeah. So listen, Herod wasn't born a king, right? I appreciate that. Thank you. It's just because of my scene. That's all it was, right? That, I, I, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'll never sing again. It's okay. I don't know if I can keep that promise or not. But anyways, so Herod's dad made a really good decision. So after Pompey and Julius Caesar had conquered this region, there began to be this huge struggle between Julius Caesar and Pompey. In fact, everything began to erupt into a civil war because of it. And Julius Caesar began to conquer one area after another inside of the known country of Rome so that he could be a lone dictator of the entire area, so that he could become what we now know as Caesar. In fact, he chased Pompey all the way down into Egypt. And at the time that he got down there, Egypt was in a massive civil war of its own. Between a lady, you ever heard of Cleopatra before? Cleopatra and her brother, Ptolemy I. And they were having a massive war. And so to try to engender themselves to Julius Caesar, Ptolemy I captures Pompey, cuts his head off, and presents it to Julius Caesar. And it makes Julius Caesar furious. 
and he actually joins the other side. He joins Cleopatra's side, and he begins to engage in the war, and he actually is losing the war. He gets himself cornered and is surrounded from all sides, and at that moment, Herod's dad rides in with troops and with with allies that were all around that he had built relationships with, and he rescues Julius Caesar. And at that moment, Julius Caesar names him the procurator of all of Judea. He gives him the right to go collect taxes, and he gives him the ability to name governors of both Judea and Galilee, and he names his two sons. So in 47 BC, Herod becomes governor of Galilee. What's interesting is, is that Herod's career skyrocketed from there. In 43 BC, just four years afterwards, his dad was poisoned and died. But that didn't stop Herod. He then became a tetrarch. Now, tetrarch is a really fancy word that says one of four in power. It's literally what it meant, is that there were four people that you were given a quarter of the power of an area. And so he, along with his brother, both became tetrarchs of Idumea. There were four people that were in power. And then, as a tetrarch, Herod began to use his power. In fact, there was a man, his name was Hezekiah. He was a thief and a robber. And he would, he would go and raid these different cities that were all in Herod's territory. And he would hit caravans that were traveling along the way. And Herod didn't want to have anything to do with this guy. He was so furious at him that when he caught him, he executed him on the spot. The Romans celebrated because part of it was their caravans that had been being raided by this guy. They were excited about this. The Jews were furious because the Jews had a rule that in order to execute anybody, it had to go in front of the Sanhedrin first, which is a ruling body who could then say that this person could die. But since he didn't do that, they were like, you don't care about us. You just care about Rome, which was right. And so they ran Herod out of town. He had to go into exile. And while he was in exile, the entire area erupted into war. You had multiple factions who were all trying to get control. In fact, the previous regime, which is called the Hasmonean Dynasty, I don't expect you to remember that. There is a test next, next week, though, just so you know. <laughs> the Hasmonean Dynasty, they had a guy who he went and recruit, recruited a brand new empire that was going from Iraq. He said, why don't you come in? And for the next four years, they ruled over this area of Idumea. And Herod saw his moment. He saw, he knew the importance of this area for traveling, for goods, for being able to ship things. It was the gateway to get to everything to the east. It was the passageway to get to north and south, unless you were doing things by boat, which you can't do year-round. And so... Herod takes off from exile and goes to Rome. And he seeks help from Rome and says, listen, help me to get rid of your problem in my land. And the Senate is so moved by what he says that they give him the title King of the Jews. And they send him back to take care of their problem. They send him with money and with all the troops that he could need. 
And by 37 BC, he had wiped out all of his competition, brutally murdering them, assassinating them, defeating them in war, whatever it took to get his throne. And Rome was extremely satisfied because Herod was not a gentle ruler. In fact, in order to get those that were around him to support him, he took 15 of the wealthiest people in the area and he took all of their stuff. He seized it and he sent it all off to Rome. And he said, the rest of you that have lots of money and resources, if you don't follow me, I'll do the same to you. Can you imagine what they all did? Yeah, they were quick to, to fall in line. And Herod, though, he didn't want people to hate him. And so because that they had, they wanted a Hasmonean dynasty, that's who that led them through freedom, he married, he married a woman that was a princess of that dynasty. It was actually his second marriage. So for his first marriage, he just got rid of her, shipped her off, put her into exile, along with his firstborn son. They're both gone. And so he began to have more children. And a few years later, this new wife began to plot his death. Not once, but twice. Twice she plotted for his death. And so he executed her. Came up with a plan to show that she had been unfaithful, that she had had an adulterous relationship, and not only did he execute the man that he accused, but he executed her as well, thinking that that would solve all of his problems. And then he went one step further. He brought back the firstborn son that was in exile to be the heir again. He was like, listen, your mom, she messed up everything for you guys. And so now you're cut out of my will. Now he had three sons who hated him, not just one. And you can imagine that each of those sons began to separately plot their revenge on their father. Different attempts on his life. Some of them were thwarted by his own spies who figured things out. Some of them were thwarted because of his sister who figured out the plots. But by the time that we get to this moment when the wise men have shown up, all three of those sons have been executed. In fact, Caesar Augustus said this. He said, it is better to be Herod's heis, which means pig, than to be his hyos, which means son. How interesting that Caesar Augustus knew about all the things that were going on. And he was like, it's better to be one of the pigs because he doesn't eat pork because he's Jewish, or at least pretending to be Jewish, than it is to be his own son. Wow. So we come to this moment. Most scholars believe that this is in the last year of Herod's life, somewhere around 4 BC. The wise men walk in, and they ask him, where is this son, the new king of the Jews? The title that for the last 30 years, Herod has done everything he can to defend this title. He wasn't going to give this up without a fight. So here was Herod's dilemma. Who is the real king of the Jews? 
Is it him? Or is it this newborn baby? Now Matthew's telling of this story. I don't think it's about making a villain out of Herod. That's how we look at it because we see this king who killed all the babies because he was paranoid and he was scared about what was going to happen. But I think really Matthew, Matthew was, was highlighting something for us. He's already given us this lineage of who Jesus is and he comes from. And if you were here last week, then you know that he answered this major problem about if Joseph was in the line of David, then how did Jesus get into that same line? And he answers that with this adoption. By the way, Luke also answers it by telling us that Mary is also from the line of David. So we have not only an adoption into the line of David, but we have this already birthright because of being born with Mary. And so we have this title that's been bestowed to him. And now, now we have to have this, this recognition from the guy who was the holding title holder, you know, the title holder right now. Herod was king of the Jews. And his attempt to take out the life of Jesus gave credence to who Jesus was. By the way, one of my favorite adversaries that happens in Herod's life is actually Cleopatra. Cleopatra and Herod hated each other for a couple of different reasons. One, they had the same mineral rights. And so they were always fighting over these resources. Two, Cleopatra from the Ptolemy dynasty, part of her birthright was the area of Idumea. So you can imagine that she wanted to oust Herod as fast as she could so that she could get this area that was supposed to be hers. And obviously we've told you what Herod thinks about that kind of stuff, right? You know what I found incredibly interesting is even though Cleopatra dies in 30 BC, her daughter, also named Cleopatra, by the way, takes over and her daughter is actually more influential and a better ruler than her mom was. And I had never put all this together, but you know why I think the royal family fled to Egypt? Because Cleopatra would protect them. Because if there was another heir to the throne, if there was somebody different that could usurp Herod's authority, she was going to do everything in her might because of her mom and the feud that they had had and the feud that she had with Herod to try to get rid of it. What an interesting thing. So here it is. Herod wrestled with this question. Who is the real king? His decision, right, was get rid of them all because I am the real king. You know, I think it's interesting, that question. And I think it's especially interesting this time of the year, right? Because at Christmas time, we have lots of people who begin to talk about who is the king of Christmas. By the way, a lot of you know Christmas means Christ's mass, right? But it also means Christ's the sent one. That's what that idea of mass means, is to send. Now, most of us in America, if we were honest, or maybe we asked our kids, right? I read a story about a dad that was talking with his kids, and he was like, hey, whose birthday do we celebrate this time of the year? And the kid looked right back at the dad and said, Santa Claus's birthday! Right? 
Because lots of times we think that Santa is the king of Christmas. Someone recently pointed out to me that the attributes of God that we give to Santa. You ever noticed this before? Right? There's a song. It says, I told you I wouldn't sing. Here it is. I'm going to do it again right now. It says that uh, he sees you when you're sleeping. Right? He knows when you're awake. He's, he knows if you've been good or bad, so be good for goodness sake. Right? Hmm. So what we sing about is, is we're singing that Santa is all-present, all-knowing, and he's able to be a judge of right and wrong. Those are godlike qualities, aren't they? You know, I like Santa, though. I like all the things that Santa stands for. But Santa is not God. He's not the king of Christmas. There's only one king of Christmas, and that's Jesus. You know, the real Santa will tell you this every time. That he bows his knee to Jesus. Just like everybody else. And in fact, I would go as far as to say this. I think Santa is a symbol of Jesus. Right? I could go into this whole idea of um, the red suit, right? The red suit represents Christ's blood that he shed for us. We could go into the white trim on it was about the purity, not only of Jesus, but that after we're washed in his blood that we are made clean. We could talk about the black boots that it um, represents that he came down to earth and he got into the dirtiness and the sin that we live in to rescue us. We could talk about all of that and it make a great picture about what Santa points to. But more than anything, what do we know Santa for? We know him for his generosity and his love and his peace and his joy and all things that are of Jesus. And without Jesus, there would be no Santa. And I know this time of the year, lots of families struggle with, how do I do Christmas and Santa and Jesus and all of these things together. And I think the biggest thing to understand is, is that Santa points us right back to Jesus. Because there's only one king of Christmas. There's only one real king of Christmas. And I really want to ask you one last question. Because like any king that has ever existed, we all have the choice to accept or to reject. You know, I think it's interesting over the last two weeks when Mary was faced with her dilemma and her decision came, she chose to accept Jesus. And she chose to worship him as the king. Then you have Joseph. And he chose to acknowledge and to adopt. But Herod, Herod made a whole different choice. Instead, Herod refused and rejected to bow his knee to anybody else. Who's king in your life this Christmas?
is the scene, right? Who's king in your life? We like to talk about that this time of the year Jesus came to be savior of the world, but he didn't just come to be savior. He came to be king. Not only saves us from our sin, but he asks in return that we bow our knee to him and say, he's the one who's in charge. Herod couldn't do that. So instead, he waged war against Jesus. He lost. He didn't only lose in that moment, but he loses for all eternity. So for you, is Jesus king of your life? Is Jesus the real king of your life? Have you had a moment where you said, without a shadow of a doubt, I bow my knee to him? Because he's the one who's in charge. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Herod. It seems like an interesting thing to pray, I'm sure, but God, I thank you for him because he has such a clear message for us. When faced with the dilemma of was he willing to, to give it all up? Or did he want to try to keep it all for himself? God, your, your word, the Bible, has told us that we want to hang on to everything, we're going to lose it all. But if we're willing to lose everything, God, that you'll give us even more. More than we could ever imagine. You know, if that's you, you're here today and you're like, you know what, maybe, maybe I knew Jesus as the Savior, but I'm not really so sure that he's king of my life. There's two things that you can do. Number one, at the end of the service, I'll be in the back of the room and be more than happy to talk with you about how to make Jesus the one who's king. So you don't walk away from this Christmas season, which points to him, everything points to him not acknowledge him as your king or if you want on your card just write the word Jesus down there in the prayer section in fact in just a moment we're going to invite our ushers to come forward and we're going to take the offering and really the first thing that we ask from everybody that's here is that you place your card in the offering if you've been worshiping with us for a while then we invite you to to give and to be a part of what's going on here, the, the mission of what we're doing. If you're here for the first time and you're a guest, that's all we ask is just that card. Just place that card in there. Father, I thank you for this time of offering that we're about to take. I know that we're going to continue to sing and some, some worship and just acknowledging you as the king. I pray that Tomorrow when I wake up, that I'll acknowledge you as king. Tuesday when I wake up, that I'll acknowledge you as king. But that I would constantly remember that you are the king. You're the king of my life. To give you all of the glory and all of the honor in your name.